Hello. Oh, it's you again. I didn't expect to see you back so soon, considering how you left the condition of the podcast last time. Oh, you don't remember what happened? Well, that's convenient, isn't it? Though it's also expected, I suppose, considering the mess you made involved enormous amounts of spilled chloroform. I see that you brought a friend. That's good. Does your friend know about your chloroform clumsiness? Yes? You can be as generous with a knockout gas as you want with this guy, huh? So we're already at episode two. I can't believe it myself. It seems like it was only one episode ago that we were talking about neckties. Oh, to be young. This episode, episode two, for those of you keeping track at home, and if you are, God help you. This steals from my funny learning series of essays, a series which spanned exactly two essays. This specific one I posted to my website, calebjross.com, in October of 2014, so as you listen, you may get a sense that you've read this before. Well, don't worry. You very well could have. Or maybe it's just deja vu. Or more likely, you're suffering the effects of a room full of spilled chloroform. So sit back and relax, as if you have any choice, right? What with the chloroform and all? And enjoy episode two of Meet My Father, The Internet, entitled, It Takes a Man to Get a Vasectomy, an episode which documents my own personal experience with getting a vasectomy. You'll also learn a few things, the history of the vasectomy, various attempts at vasectomization in the past, which I guess falls into the umbrella of history. Now I'm just rambling. I shouldn't do that. I should get right to the meat of the vasectomy says nobody ever the first successful and purposeful vasectomy was done on a dog i use the term purposeful purposefully as I fear eunuchs, given that they've lost so much, would take offense to not being given at least some credit as early vasectomy adopters. Medically speaking, of course, castrated is not the same as vasectomized, but I'm not willing to make that point to someone who's already lost what many men consider their reason for living. Are you? Anyway, back to the dog. There's no documentation to support any of the possible theories as to why a dog was chosen, let alone the specific dog. It's possible that a dog's penis is simply similar to a human's penis, and therefore suffices as an anatomical stand-in. It's also possible that an ultra-capitalist breeder ordered the vasectomy in order to artificially curb supply for that particular breed. I prefer to imagine that the dog in question had aggressive genes, and that its owner, not willing to have it euthanized, agreed to either of two alternate options, either one, dog condoms, that makes sense, right? or two, experimental wiener surgery. The wiener surgery was ultimately chosen, I assume, because at that time, the year 1823, condoms were made of fish and animal intestines. That's actually true. Notice the important grammatical choice here of leaving off intestine 
from the word fish, meaning that condoms were not made of fish intestines and animal intestines, but of whole fish. Think about that next time you claim that a condom is uncomfortable. And nobody wanted to be the guy to wrap sheet guts around a dog boner. Except Marvin the village creep, he volunteered, but nobody trusted their dog to be alone with him. And why would they? His name is Marvin the village creep. That's actually a given name. Ugh, I need a beer after reading that one. Oh, that is delicious. I recommend beer if you guys have not had beer yet. Anyway, back to the history lesson. This dog, we'll assume for the sake of a just and humorous god, is a wiener dog, is not the sole recipient of animal testing for the sake of safe human sexual intercourse. Humans have long searched animal hindquarters for solutions to our sexual conundrums. In one example, a 2009 government funding application to test a, quote, RAI, which stands for Receptive Anal Intercourse Condom, called for placing condom bits into rabbit vaginas for five consecutive days to test for potential irritation. The rabbits were later, quote, sacrificed for an in-depth examination. Though there is a lot to be offended by here, I can't help but focus on the implied medical similarity between human anuses and rabbit vaginas. On the bright side, maybe there's a corollary. If you ever get caught masturbating with a carrot, just say you're doing rabbit science. Animal involvement in human sex isn't limited to laboratory testing. The internet is rife with man-on-beast porn. I've heard. Not to mention our storied history of pantomiming animal sex positions, most notoriously described in the Kama Sutra. Here, we are blessed with positions like the logistically confusing Union of the Elephant, the wonderfully punny The Camel's Hump, and now the associatively depressing Bouncing Bunny. Sorry about that last one. Given all of this context, a dog vasectomy seems pretty normal, actually. Two, we are an idiocracy. Long before man willingly kinked his own hose, arguments in favor of the systematic sterilization of criminals and other, quote, degenerates gained some degree of favor. Degenerates included, among others, schizophrenics, deaf people, maniacs, morons, idiots, and sadists. Strangely absent from that list, though, bestiality enthusiasts. You think that would be a given? But where is the evidence that degenerates breed degenerates, you ask? The answer can be found in Ada Juke's vagina. In 1912, Richard Dugdale, an armchair prison researcher, which apparently exists, traced the progeny of Ada Juke, a pseudonym, for evidence of genetic degeneracy. If her forever after nickname, Margaret, the mother of criminals, isn't telling enough of Dugdale's findings, then let's look at the numbers. Of Ada's 1,200 direct descendants, 1,000 were found to be, quote, degenerates, either as criminals, insane people, prostitutes, or inebriates. The final monetary toll to the state, including housing, rehabilitation, and more, $1,300,000, which is $31.2 million adjusted for inflation. Wow. Even before Dugdale's findings, in 1899, Albert Oshner, future professor of surgery at the University of Illinois, would argue for systemic sterilization of criminals. Numerous supportive articles and papers would follow, as would the actual practice of eugenic sterilization, often by castration, sometimes with legal authority, but often without. 
cutting off sperm to tame a rambunctious population seems, though ethically wrong, at least scientifically plausible, but doing the same to make men more sexually active? Oh, the mysteries of the wiener continue. 3. The Steinick Operation Helping Poets Get Boners Since 1918 Richard Dugdale? Albert Oshner? Where are the real names, the famous poets, and the polarizing neurologists to weigh in on the pre-Hitlerian eugenics debate? Well, sadly, there aren't any, at least not with influence in the traditional vasectomy as we've come to incorrectly understand it, that being a practice that decreases testosterone. But I wouldn't tease you without reason. Irish poet William Butler Yeats and father of psychoanalysis Sigmund Freud did participate in sans sperm testicular medicine, however, from a somewhat strange perspective, meant to actually increase vitality and manliness. In 1922, Dr. Harry Benjamin published an article in American Medicine extolling the virtues of vasectomy for the seemingly contradictory aim of increasing vitality. Popular thinking often equates, again incorrectly, vasectomy with decreased sex drive. However, Dr. Benjamin discovered that a very specific type of vasectomy, one that ligates the vas deferens closer to the testicle, would actually support manliness rather than diminish it resulting in, quote, restoration of sexual potency, increase of libido, and better erections. Yates and Freud, recipients of the Steinick operation vasectomy, reportedly asked their respective doctors about the operation, quote, uh, for a friend. And the Steinick operation was actually named for its inventor, psychologist Eugene Steinick, whose interest in testicles famously included transplanting guinea pig testes onto a female guinea pig. My hat is off to that literal scientific guinea pig. Oh, Freud, sometimes a cigar needs a bit of surgical help, huh? As a side note, really, there's no evidence that Freud actually ever said, quote, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Sometimes a misquote is just a misquote, I suppose. 4. The Avocado and Me, A Love Story Eventually, all the talk of sterilizing criminals and erecting psychoanalysts would give way to the contemporary purpose of the vasectomy, pretending to smuggle an overripe avocado in your pants. I know this sounds weird, but stay with me here. Personal history would at least suggest that that's one of the goals of a vasectomy. It was late in 2013. My wife and I had been discussing ways to simultaneously shove a needle in my scrotum and solve a dilemma we had been wrestling with for a while. How do we ensure that our perfect family of four remains four? Well, it turns out that the societal appreciation of convenience is not limited to just small variety stores and concert ticket surcharges. No, doctors are actually willing to prick and attack your prick sack, solder it back, and shake your hand afterward, all without judging you. It's your face, at least. You'll be limping out of the doctor's office with plenty of time left in your evening to swing by the 7-Eleven for a chicken salad sandwich before heading off to see a Maroon 5 show. I had been interested in the concept of a vasectomy since the age of 14 when I watched an episode of the 1990s family sitcom Home Improvement, an episode aptly titled The Vasectomy. This experience would encourage me to research the word vasectomy in the grade school library which, as it happens, is exactly as difficult as you would imagine. This new knowledge that a human being would actually willingly call a person on the phone and schedule a specific time to have his scrotum punctured forced me to question the sanity of adults. Was sex really that important? 
By that time in my life, I had done quite well keeping my penis free of all things indicative of adolescence. Jock straps? Nope. Pubic hair? Not yet. Girls? Ew. I couldn't imagine undergoing such a brutal procedure, specifically designed to encourage proximity to at least two of those three aversions. Maybe all three at once if the girl had pubic hair and a jockstrap fetish. What struck me most then, and still does today, I eventually got over the no girls near my penis fear, is the contradiction that a vasectomy represents. A vasectomy is a procedure that essentially allows humans to engage in carefree animalistic behavior and is an exception in a society that generally favors self-control of such behavior. We would rather have our balls clipped than be held accountable to our urges. It seems strange that vasectomies get to be the rare exception when so much primal inequality exists in the world. Elective surgery, instead of having to quell your boners via simple willpower and cold showers, seems excessive. But hormones always win, don't they? In January, 2013, I went under the knife, and for a full week afterwards, my ball sack swelled to the size of an avocado and turned a disgusting shade of overripe purple-black. I knew there would be swelling, but I did not expect to fear that security guards at the farmer's market were eyeing me as a produce smuggler. And you know what? That's not the only thing I didn't expect. I'd like to now, if I could, give you five overlooked considerations when getting a vasectomy. Now, vasectomies are not for everyone. One needs supplies. Important are, one, a penis, of course. Two, a couple of vast deferens, two at least, would be nice. And three, a supreme confidence that the world is adequately supplied with your brand of genetic muck. But there are additional factors to consider that may not be so obvious. So before you head off to great clips for your greatest clip, think about these overlooked aspects of a vasectomy. A little asterisk there, Great Clips doesn't actually deal in scrotal puncturing. A Fantastic Sam's though, they offer it to everyone as part of their cut, wash, and cauterize package. It's, it's a very good deal. Number one, you will have to tell your parents. The announcement of your vasectomy can be a difficult one. My recommendation is to forego announcing it entirely. Instead, wait patiently for the right time. Your friend's engagement party, no. In the middle of sex with your mistress? Not yet. At your parole hearing? Well, sure. A vasectomy might earn you some points with a judge. Your parents, however, do deserve a proper announcement. Perhaps more than your wife and even more than your Catholic congregation, you will have to help navigate your parents through the many stages of vasectomy acceptance. Or vasectance as I've just now trademarked. And yes, I did say wife here, because I assume it's still PC for me to assume a vasectomy is an operation considered only by heterosexual couples, though I'd love to see a comedy skit where a gay man asks his partner to get a vasectomy. Maybe the guy doesn't understand pregnancy and the conversation forces him to reconsider whether or not he's actually gay. Key and Peel, get on this. Parents want grandkids, lots of grandkids. It's a numbers game. The more blood relation in the world, the better chances they have to be pampered during their late pampers years. So I went the humor route. I informed my mother via a card and a bouquet of flowers for her birthday. The card read, and I'm not kidding here at all, this is absolutely true. Happy birthday, mom. I'm getting a vasectomy. It has nothing to do with you or your birthday. A birthday card seemed like an appropriate way to spill those beans. Though understand that no beans shall be spilled in the future. And I think the funniest part of all of this is that the card 
was actually handwritten. I assumed when I ordered these flowers online that the card would be typed. You know, it would just be an automatic thing that they put in there. No, some lady had to actually write this card and put it in the flowers, which makes me super, super, super happy. I hope she's still out there talking about that to her friends and family to this day. Consideration number two, bring a jockstrap, bring a jockstrap, bring a jockstrap. I was told by my doctor and his nurse, not once, not twice, well, not four times, but three times, to bring a jockstrap to the procedure. The nurse's exact words were, quote, not tight boxer briefs, it must be a proper jockstrap. Silly me, I had always thought of a jockstrap as a redundant piece of underwear. I have boxer briefs and, if necessary, a free hand that can be molded into a protective cup shape. Little did I know that jockstraps also work as handy vasectomized testis hammocks. And I've never had a legitimate reason to wear a jockstrap. Sure, I was required to wear one during football in junior high, but the superfluous existence of the garment was apparent immediately in multiple ways. First, I never actually played football. I ran the drills and complained like everyone else, but for me, game time wasn't measured in quarters, but rather in ass splinters, as I rarely stood from the bench. Second, my penis and balls did not collectively have enough mass to be considered burdensome in any way. Now imagine, if you will, a tiny cartoon mouse with a hobo bindle containing two dried peas. The odds of that mouse losing his precious package between two colliding shoulder pads during a middle school football game are pretty slim. Now fast forward to the age of 32, I can proudly say that I now fill out that mouse bindle just fine. Number three, you will have to shave your own balls. Now this is a quote from the actual pre-operative vasectomy instructions document. <clears throat> On the night before surgery, shave the upper scrotal area. The hair should be removed from the base of the penis, leave the hair on the abdomen, down over the scrotum. On the morning of surgery, shower and wash the scrotal area with soap and water. Now there's a few things that I wanna call out here. Uh, first of all, shave the upper scrotal area. Now I've owned a scrotum for several years and not once have I been forced to ponder which part would be considered the upper part. I assume we're talking anterior, but it's possible we're dealing with a ventral situation if I'm lying down during the operation, as I assumed I would be. So it's very confusing. Also, the um, leave the hair on the abdomen part. Now, why exactly is it important to leave hair on the abdomen? Without this strange parenthetical, I would have assumed I could stop shaving once I got outside the immediate scrotum slash penis base vicinity. But now I wonder if leaving hair on the abdomen is somehow integral to the success of the operation. If I shave my abdomen, will I somehow be more likely to impregnate? And lastly, the part about washing with soap and water. Soap and water? That's pretty fancy. What is the president going to be watching or something? I imagine this washing directive is less a surgical instrument sterility consideration and more a simple courtesy to the doctor in the same way that turning your head to cough has nothing to do with the actual hernia test. Doctors simply don't want to be coughed on or have to smell fetid scrotum. It's true, actually. I asked my doctor, my female doctor, about that. They just don't want to be coughed on. And I can respect that. Being self-conscious about my concern number two, after the operation, I asked the doctor if my shave job was adequate. I can proudly say that I followed the instructions perfectly. I, I do understand that it's possible that, quote, following the instructions and, quote, adequate 
shave job may be mutually exclusive. Poorly written instructions would logically encourage poorly shaved scrotums. Confirmation of my adequacy is surprising, actually. The razor and me aren't exactly on familiar terms. See, I don't grow body hair very well. My arms are hairless, my chest is hairless, I shave my face only four to five times per month, and that's really just to keep me from looking like a failed shaved rabbit anus condom experiment. Patchy is an adequate term used often to describe my face. Consideration number four, small talk is important and is still very awkward. I'm a bit of a wuss. Needles make me go pale. Blood, especially my own, brings me to near faint. In fact, these wuss-like characteristics and the probability that they are genetic might be responsible for the unimpressed reactions I often received when I spoke of my then forthcoming vasectomy. Here's a, here's a common exchange. <clears throat> me. Hey, I'm getting a vasectomy. Everyone. Yeah, that makes sense. You've never known how important small talk is until you're using it to distract yourself from the pain of a knife rearranging your male fallopian tubes while trying to avoid the embarrassment of having a nurse stare down your taint like a baseball umpire eyeing the strike zone. I informed the doctor and his nurse before the surgery that I was a bit of a wuss. Small talk helped occupy my attention. The doctor asked me about my kids, about work, where I lived, and so on, and I appreciated that. Just after the surgery, the doctor offered to show me this specimen. Now, part of me thought the doctor was prodding my admitted wussiness. I could respect that too. The other part of me hated him. A third part wondered if, quote, specimen was perhaps a bit grandiose considering we're essentially dealing with a cut tip from a coffee stirrer, not an Ebola virus zero patient. I hesitated to view the snipped tubling, but sure, I said. I'll take a look at a spent bullet casing in a jar as long as I can't accidentally glimpse the entire war zone. What did the specimen look like? Imagine a single grain of quinoa dipped in marinara sauce. Now imagine the next time you eat quinoa and marinara sauce that you're eating my vast deference. Speaking of eating human flesh, consideration number five. You will be hungry. A vasectomy requires six hours of fasting. No food, no drink. Now I'm not a raging food addict, but when hunger is paired with anxiety, I get grumpy and somehow extra hungry. By the time of my operation, I was so hungry that the cauterized burning flesh smell emanating from between my legs could have signified an edible, though still not very much ideal, meal. For a moment, I sympathized with zombies. After the operation, my evening forked with two equally important objectives. One, get food, and two, get my pain prescription filled before the pharmacy closed. Factor in the sudden ice storm and the resulting slow traffic and those two objectives became even harder to prioritize. I had to choose. Food or pills? I chose food. The Arby's Smokehouse Brisket. That's your new demographic, Arby's. 30-year-old post-vasectomized men and the wives who have to drive them to the doctor's office. Luckily, I got the pills too. Hey, wake up. Wake up there, sleepyhead. It's over. Oh, wasn't that delightful? The episode or the nap, either one. I care about your embrace of delight, no matter the medium. I would love it if you shared your experience with a few friends on Facebook or Twitter or any of the other social onlineries. Again, this episode or the nap, I don't care. In our sleep-deprived culture, 
if I can claim that my podcast, along with a dose of chloroform, of course, contributed to a pleasing slumber, then I'd call that a win. Meet my father, the internet, encouraging a healthy lifestyle for over two episodes. Hey, don't forget to subscribe. Really, it's easy. Just press a button. The one that says subscribe. There's lots of buttons to press. I know how distracting they can be. Look for the word subscribe. That's your clue.